0: Hello, I'm Chris Moon, a recovery and perpetual artist manager, and I'll be your guide through Tough Love, Adventures in Artist Management. For today's episode, we continue to veer off script and join my friend Dick Huey for a chat. While Dick started out as a musician, then an artist manager, before wisely pivoting over into digital marketing at the very dawn of digital media and music, His fierce advocacy for artists and their rights, mirrored with supporting independent labels as they entered the digital landscape, provides for many illuminating stories and perspectives, having worked on initial digital campaigns for Sufjan Stevens and Arcade Fire, to name a few. Dick's company, Toolshed, has evolved into business development work, supporting many new and emerging companies, touching on AI and music analytics. We cover all of this and a lot more in our conversation. Let's dig in now. Hello, Chris. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you.
1: Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about uh, about my background. Um, I'm the founder of a company called Toolshed. We've been in business for 20 years. And our current focus is really on two different verticals. We do Business development for music tech companies, primarily that are uh, forward-thinking and are revenue-positive, and we also do advisory work for many different startups in different parts of the um, <clears throat> different parts of the crypto space, different parts of the um, digital space, mostly forward-thinking technology initiatives of one kind or another.
0: Yeah, I love the fact that you use the word forward thinking um, because when you and I got to know each other way far back, (laughs) um, the industry, uh, I would say, you know, was still very much in its kind of heyday of CDs and, you know, like pre digital, let's just call it that for the most part. Um, So I've always been curious to know um how did you end up like or what like propelled you to be so able to be forward thinking in your own way as far as what digital music would ultimately become for the industry both from like a a, you know what it affords artists but what it also affords the industry itself um because if you kind of look at like the end of the mid to late 1990s early 2000s and then flash forward 20 years it's drastically different, probably more so than any other era of the industry itself. Um, and I would say few people probably totally could appreciate or understand where that would go. So, what was the what was the epiphany or moment <laughs> or driver for you to kind of like have that uh, forward thinking kind of leaning approach? So, I I think to really explain.
1: <clears throat> how I went down that road I have mm-hmm. to go back just a little bit further sure and talk about um, uh, talk about the fact that i I came from a very small northern Michigan town with very bland radio <laughs> and absolutely no music industry connection whatsoever so the music the connection I had to the music industry all had to be manufactured out of thin air mm. from my perspective and That, the timing on that was sort of the late 80s. So, you know, that was just at the cusp of very, very early parts of the digital revolution of music. I think the first MP3 was sort of officially put out into the world sometime in the early 90s. -hmm.
0: Um,
1: But that's, that's steps down the road. So, um, you know, I, I was a really outgoing person, uh, that sort of continues to this day. But, um, I, I picked up a guitar at some point in the late eighties and I couldn't put it down. Um, and it happened just about that quickly. So I started, I got to the point where I had practiced enough and was good enough that I could play out in clubs, played out in clubs, met other musicians from meeting other musicians i came to a really important realization which was um i'm I'm probably not going to be a professional musician but i am actually pretty good at organizing and and helping professional musicians and so it was from that that i wound up tying into um my very first management client who was a singer out of mm. um the pacific northwest actually she was from charlotte north carolina at the time but she moved to the pacific northwest named Shirley Dillon, and i heard Shirley one night when i was had just finished playing an open mic i was walking out of a club she started playing and i turned around and walked back in and i <laughs> was just flabbergasted couldn't believe it um so it sort of it sort of grew from there actually um You know, I, I very quickly set up a little office in my house. And as far as I was concerned, I was in the music business and I was a manager. And, you know, this was around the time when, um, you were just starting to get consumer adoption of, um, or maybe not consumer adoption. You were just starting to get consumer access to the World Wide web. Oh, okay. To the internet. And. So this is where I connect into your question. So most of what I did, I found I could now do over a 14.4K modem moving very, very slow, but I could find resources and things to use for my little management business on the internet. Mm. It's also around the time, maybe a little bit later, when I first was exposed to digital music. So I didn't come into the music industry with a a history of, you know, the physical side of the business um, so much. I mean, that was still the predominant platform when I started, but um, I didn't have a very long history exploring that. And what was right in front of me was the digital world. And that's how I got interested in, in, in that piece of it. And then there's more to talk about, but that's, that's the basics of it.
0: Yeah, no, I'd forgotten about, um, yeah, your touch point in artist management and yeah, like so many people, um, you know, starting out as a musician or dabbling in that, so to say, (laughs) and then, um, you know, just being uh, interested in, in being supportive of, of the good uh, and, and, you know, impactful artists that are around us that you stumble into uh, is, is kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of see the parallel to that to also, I would assume, having a vision to where, you know, that kind of forward leaning um, opportunity in the digital space would kind of present itself over time. Do you feel like that, that kind of lends itself, um, in a similar way? Well, it presented like itself. I vantage point. It presented itself over time to me,
1: um, because again, sort of out of necessity, you know, mm. I, I had decided that I was a quote unquote music manager, but, uh, you know, I was maybe if I was in a, good year. Maybe I was bringing in a couple thousand dollars a year in music management in commissions or whatever it was helping to book Mm -hmm. short tours. So for me, the, um, the presentation of the digital world sort of came at the, at the tail end of, um, of me thinking about how am I going to make some money? Well, um, I love working with computers. Always have. I'm a good teacher. I was a windsurf instructor um, back when I was in um, Mm. late high school and early college. So I like to teach people and I thought, okay, maybe I can, maybe I can do some freelance teaching of computer skills. So this would be, I don't know, spreadsheet, early spreadsheets, word perfect. I mean, you, Maybe you remember some of these, these oh, wow. very early Lotus One, Two, oh, Three, yeah. all that early stuff. So mm-hmm. I found a company that would let me teach that on a freelance basis in North Carolina, where I was living at the time. And then literally all my other time was spent working on music. So that way I could just barely pay my bills and spend all my time working on music. Um, and so by the, I would say that during the time period where I was actively working as a manager, it was about a seven year period. Um, I also did quite a bit of tour management, that wound up being another way to make some money. And this all sort of led mm-hmm. to um, signing first one and then a second band, to the Beggars Group, to Beggars Banquet specifically. Oh, okay. Um, that that was the band June and the band Stella. June was from Chapel Hill. Stella was from Nashville. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: by the time I signed the second band to, um, to Beggars, uh, I was pretty ensconced in that, uh, in that group. Um, the U.S. office had started um, for Beggars Group or for Beggars Banquet maybe two years previous to that. So they were still pretty new. There weren't very many people there. And as it turned out, Three weeks before the record for um, Stella was supposed to come out, the marketing guy quit, um, Corey Brennan, who's now the manager oh, of man. Um, He was the head of marketing oh. at Beggars at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so uh, Leslie, the, the head of the label, called me up in panic. We don't have marketing for the record. And I said, I'll do it. I'll move to New York. I'll move my family. That's how I got to New York and to beggars. Wow. And then the last piece of the puzzle is, um, because I had this computer background, I not only became the marketing mm-hmm. guy, but the office IT guy. And so, oh, okay. when I was doing the office IT, I got, um, tied into some of the other label heads, um, in the, in the corporate office over in, in London, uh, for beggars group. Um, and the head of IT over in London. So I started going over there and we started meeting on a regular basis, I guess about six months into my marketing gig um, and talking about, you know, should we have a digital department? Should we start a digital department? And there were all the label heads. So Martin Mills, the chairman of Beggars, um, all of the Four ADs mm-hmm. label head, um, XL uh, Richard Russell, Kind of uh, this whole crew of label people, all who all had great jobs, and me who had a marketing job. And at one point, Martin said, "Would anybody like to run the digital department? Start a digital department here?" And I was the only guy that said yes. And that's how I got into
0: digital wow. music.
1: <laughs> so you always say yes.
0: Wow. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Always say yes. <laughs> um, you can always say no later, right? <laughs>
1: You can always say no (laughs) later. And if you can't, you know, you can't do it. You can try to figure it out, but always say yes.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Wow. So what (laughs) was that like then? Like jumping into that, um, probably, you know, obviously with, you know, on a personal, uh, you know, kind of history perspective, probably feeling like, oh yeah, I'm built for this, but you know, by and large, the industry was still pretty young towards the digital, you know, side of things. So like, what, what did that entail as you kind of started carving out that job? And was there a lot of kind of counterparts in other label groups and other places doing something similar, or was it a little bit more kind of finding your feet as you went along?
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, and I like the way you phrased it. Um, and, and sort of the two pieces. Um, so for the, for the first piece, what it was like, there was no digital infrastructure at, at Beggar's when I started there. I mean, we, we got the first URL. We tried to get beggarsbanquet.com that was owned by somebody at some cafe in Michigan called the Beggar's Banquet Cafe, um, ah. who I think later tried to sell it to Beggar's for a lot of money. Um, but uh, we had beggars.com sure. so we got beggars.com we got xlrecordings.com, 480.com all of that and um, mm-hmm. there also was no licensing infrastructure so <clears throat> you know it was it was right at the start of this period when i had really sort of started messing around a little bit with um, with digital music and and Understanding how digital music tied into this sort of generalized IT background that I had. And, you know, I realized pretty quickly that we didn't have, we didn't have a license framework for digital music. So um, we had to build that. And, you know, digital music initially was less about selling it and more about promoting using digital music. So... Right. Um, you know, it was kind of a storybook time for me. I mean, for, first of just coming to the beggars group out of, you know, basically hustling around for seven years and having a lot of fun doing a lot of cool music stuff, but barely making a cent to all of a sudden having a stable wage, a job that I went to, you know, 10 AM to 7 PM every day, um, in New York city. Mm-hmm an independent record label that had the pixies and the breeders and prodigy and you know just this incredible stable of music and yeah i mean it was a total pinch yourself every day when i woke up i was i kept thinking what am i doing here <laughs> how did i get this job and <laughs> and you know so when we started doing licensing we had to build a licensing framework and i got to do that with martin which was just the thrill of my career I mean Martin Mm. is um such a first of all so smart second such a visionary um and an incredible champion for independent music I mean I don't think I could have started at a more interesting and you know introspective and forward-thinking label um yeah you know one of I know this I, I just want to talk for a minute about Martin, but one of his incredible skills, I think, as a label owner, is his ability, no matter what the, no matter what the delivery platform is, to be able to think about it
0: mm-hmm.
1: and not get hung up on the tech, but just think about what is, what's the product, how's it being transmitted, who's sharing in it, what does that mean in terms of percentages? He's mm-hmm. so good at that. And so I had, you know, this sort of three and a half year period where we traveled around, we met with all the early digital services, and we also built a whole framework for sharing um, MP3s with, uh, you know, in a Hmm. uh, giveaway sense, with rollingstone.com and with all these other early digital outlets. And... It was just, it was so much fun. I had great, great time doing it. And, um, you know, the labels started doing fun digital promotions. I can still remember the first digital e-card I did with Peaches. I remember coming in and putting together a Scratch and Sniff e-card with Peaches. (laughs) There was all kinds of fun (laughs) stuff. I mean, it was crazy. And then, you know, of course, at the end of my tenure there, they acquired Matador Records. They also licensed the digital catalog of 4AD to Atomic Pop for a short period of time and then Atomic Pop went belly up and so they got the catalog back. Um, oh, okay. <clears throat> I mean, it just was, there was something new every day and it, it really was was yeah. super fun. Yeah,
0: super fun. And, and, uh, and by new, like a whole new landscape a whole new landscape and, so, and i didn't enter
1: oh sorry i didn't enter the se- answer the second part of your question but i can get to that in a minute if you want to ask me something else
0: oh that's fine no 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 worries um i was just wondering you know thinking about the licensing component of it not to get too into weeds with that but i remember working with an independent band that um did a collaboration with JJ Abrams and we were wanting to put music up on iTunes. This would have been as iTunes launched or right around the time, right after. And I remember getting a, a, an agreement from Apple um, that was pretty lengthy uh, for licensing this particular record or not really licensing as much, just, you know, putting it up on iTunes. But there wasn't like, um, there wasn't like a negotiation really. I mean, it was Apple. They're like, take it or leave it. But, I mean, what did what did licensing, like, from a framework even look like for, in, at that time, for a promotional purpose component of just purely marketing and essentially giving away MP3s to, um, you know, get interest in an artist? Um, so... Was it, like, a, was there time limits on it or limitations? Or, like, I'm just curious, like, what, what that would have been, uh-huh. you know, in comparison to what you're used to seeing nowadays.
1: Yeah, you know, so... So it's important to establish the time frame. This would have been the late nineties. This was before mm-hmm. the internet crash, so there were lots of digital outlets around. Lots of companies that were promoting music, spending music, or spending money like water in some cases. Uh, some number of really yeah, well-run businesses. So. Custom CDs were a thing, so uh, you didn't have CD burners then. So you um, or any other way to get music onto you know, a portable format, um, or a physical format Mm. and digital wasn't enough of a thing at that point. I think real networks was just getting fired up at that point, um, which was streaming music. So, um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, the, the deals that we were striking were mostly, you know, an understanding that if we wanted to take down the music, we could take down the music. If there was any kind of a rights issue, we could take it down. Um, Hmm. you know, they warranted that they weren't going to sell the music. It's maybe not as, I don't know that it would have been as complicated as you might think it would be bearing in mind that we've had 20 years to sort of think about all the complexities of music. This was the super early days and there was no framework. So, um, right. You know, what we were trying to do is just make sure that they understood that they couldn't just rip the music off a CD and put it up um, online promotionally, that we had to give that to them. Right. And that's gotcha. what that's what the deals did. And then, you know, on the on the digital music service deals, also remember that iTunes wasn't around then. Um, right. Became Apple, Apple Music, obviously, but they weren't around in 2000, 2001. That was 2004 that they showed up in the picture. So prior to that, it was Rhapsody and eMusic, music um, which when I started working yeah. with them was Good Noise and Liquid Audio. So these were all digital wow. formats that were being experimented with. And we licensed all those, you know, I got to license this incredible beggars group catalog to those companies too. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I wanted to circle around to this second part of your question, you know, what else was who else was doing this in the space. So in New York, at the time, there were a couple other label people who were heads of digital. And one of them was my friend, good friend, Christina Zafiris, who was at Metro Records, she was uh, their head of digital. Mm -hmm. And then a guy named Frank Davis, who was at Astral Works. And three of us decided to create a little bit of a networking organization. And this would have been in two thousand and one hmm. or so, which we called the Independent New Media Professional Association, and ah, I love that. I know <laughs> INMPA, <am> <laughs> and oh, that's we awesome. sort of. Uh, I mean, it started out like a lot of the stuff in my life as three people hanging out in a bar having beers, um, and then you know Steve Savoka joined, uh, who was at Zomba at the time, and. Um, mm-hmm who else was early i mean there there were just a slew of 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 people who sort of started coming to these monthly meetings that we were doing in fact we called it we called it the mutual admiration society because we'd talk about what we were doing and how excited we were about the thing that we were working on with a particular project and then you know christina would say oh i'm doing this project i got to tell you about this and it was it was a lot of fun um and it was before it was before the independents had really organized themselves so where this where this oh, right yeah where this um, where this group ended up paying dividends sort of over and over in my career is i you know i kept reaching out to people so the group got up to about 60 new media heads around the country and wow. um so, so I guess in late two thousand one, I made the decision, along with with Martin and his partner Andy, that um, I was going to leave Beggars, but um, that I would they were going to re- retain me as a consulting, um, or c- as a consultant, um, and mm-hmm. have me represent them on the Sound Exchange board. And um, <clears throat> but they wanted me to start my own company. And I, I did that because I just couldn't make a living at the time with a wife and two kids in New York City.
0: Yeah, um,
1: yeah I imagine that would, would know, be tricky. You know, that's just the way it works. But so I hated I hated leaving the Vegas group, but I didn't really leave them. I stayed on as a consultant until 2015 or so, I guess. Um, wow. And um, But I got to start my own thing. And that was super exciting. And this is, I want to yeah. tie back to the thing I was just talking about. So- Um, starting INMPA gave me an excuse when I started Toolshed, that's my company, um, Mm -hmm. to be able to reach out to an independent record label and say, Hey, you probably don't have, um, the infrastructure to digitally promote all your records. Why don't you let us do that for you? And it gave me a way to call people that I didn't know personally, with a sort of a Mm -hmm. carrot and say, Hey, um, would you like to join a professional organization? And then by the way, I have this company that does digital marketing. Would you, would you be interested in having me, you know, sign up your labels and, and, or sign up your label and handle your digital marketing for you today? That probably sounds impossible and it would be impossible to do, but in 2001, Doing digital marketing just meant promoting MP3s. That's pretty much all it was. Um, so, so that's how I got in touch with Slim Moon, who was my first non-beggars client, uh, at Stars. Oh, okay. So Slim um, said, "Yeah, let's 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 have you work with us." Um, and so, when we did a deal back in those days as, as Toolshed, we would handle all of the the all of the digital marketing for every project for every record that the label put out and again that meant putting out an mp3 and promoting it to a network mm-hmm. usually of of blogs and websites blogs were just getting going at that time and it also meant right. doing their digital licensing for them their catalog licensing so to the to the extent they were looking for a direct deal with the digital music services of the time we did that for them Mm -hmm. and we also hosted their downloads and it was that triple threat product. That's probably the the greatest product I've ever created as a business person. (laughs) And you really lost money if you didn't hire us because download hosting was expensive. We rolled that in for free. Um, And we also did your, all your licensing. So we brought expertise. And I had that expertise from beggars right. and, and we had the marketing side of things. And, um and we just picked up label after label, after label, Righteous Babe, Merge Records, Kill Rocks. Uh, I already said Kill Rock Stars, uh, Spin Art, um, uh, Touch and Go, uh, more music, uh, Piaz. I mean, the list just went on and on and on. It was so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, at that point in time, as you grew that business, I mean, this was probably what you and a handful of people, I would imagine, or like... What Me and was, a couple others, yeah. I mean, how did mm-hmm. you handle the volume? So the volume
1: today would would probably be unsustainable. You'd probably have to have a company of 20 people. We literally had... Right. There were two of us for a long time. Um, I had a really good friend of mine, a guy named um, Jeffrey Sparks. Was hmm. um, he wasn't an actual partner in the business, but for all intents and purposes, he was my partner in that he worked on our digital infrastructure. So he made it, he came up with the idea for how to host downloads inexpensively. Really creative, clever idea. Um, wow. And um, so, you know, he would, I, I could take a long time talking about this and I won't, but. He invented a system where we could pay like $70 a year per account and we would get enough bandwidth Mm -hmm. that we could then manually redirect the bandwidth for a particular account once it reached its daily limit, which was a gigabyte a day of data transfer. We would manually, we would put a redirect on it and we'd buy another account and we'd put it over to that account. And as we added hmm. customers and clients, we found that we could have about six or seven accounts, and with that, we mm-hmm. can handle most of the download traffic that we were hosting on behalf of labels. You know, who were paying us thousands of dollars to to do these services for them, we could you know host the whole thing for you know six hundred bucks wow. a year. I mean, it was a great it was a great idea. Uh, I give Jeffrey full credit for it. Um, Jeffrey was around for a couple of years, um, and then my sister-in-law came to work for me. And um, she took oh. over, she really built out the blog piece. She was a voracious reader, still is a voracious reader. And she built out the mm. blog network that we used. and this was the, you know, this was when Scott from Stereo Gum was still working at VH1. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really early days, people were just starting to put blogs out and we became yeah. the company that did block marketing. So that paid, that, that paid all kinds of great, great, um, uh, or brought all kinds of great opportunity to us. I can tell you two quick stories. One of which is when I sure. first signed up merge records, we did that at South by Southwest and mm-hmm. I think 2005. And I remember how excited I was because, first of all, it was Merge Records. And second, um, they were talking about our first two projects. And they said, So we have two projects. The first one is this artist, Richard Buckner. And I was like, Richard Buckner? I know Richard Buckner. He's, I tour, you know, I, I, uh, Uh, the artist that I, the first artist I ever managed was signed to the label. He's on glitter house records. I'm so excited. I, I can't okay. wait for this record. Who's the other band. And he's like, like, Laura's like this band, arcade fire. I'm like, who's Arcade fire.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, you know, I put out both records came out the same week. And as you well know, one of them wow. completely blew up our server with the first download we put out and the other one didn't. And, um, wow. even though, Uh, you know, all due respect to Richard Buckner, but, uh, that was a fun one. And then the other project we got around that time was, um, Asthmatic Kitty and Sufjan Stevens. And that was another one. Yeah. Okay. You know, this was for the Chicago record and I had a connection to his father, um, through my Hmm. aunt. Uh, they went to the same, um, high school together, Lelanau school in, in Northern Michigan. And, um, so I triangulated that. I got to uh, Sufjan show at the Mercury Lounge and met with Lowell and he said, yeah, look, come on on board. And that was another one where, you know, we, we put out wow. probably the track Chicago through our little network and it just exploded. You know, it was, we were panicking the day that went out because it just went, was going through server, through server, through server, through server of hitting the. The limit of the downloads and we had to do all this manually change the redirects manually oh, so wow anyway it was fun it's it's you know these are the digital stories that that uh
0: were happening <laughs> at the time yeah but i mean that that springs to mind just the reality of like how quickly music could spread in a way that wasn't really as organic i guess maybe in some respects as you know i mean really up to this point it was more regional through radio you know uh i would guess as far as how people would really experience or you know hearing something in a record store or whatever but now uh you know getting online and, and hearing it and downloading it and experiencing it uh, you know pretty much anywhere um that was what fascinated me the most when i finally kind of like got into like reading blogs and, and getting, I mean, it's like, wow, there's real people behind these, you know, um, these little windows into the world, sharing their opinions on stuff. And, uh, I don't know. I just found it super fascinating, you know, from a connection point. I mean, I remember going to LA and meeting up with, and i have got, I'm going to space on his name off the top of my head. A guy who runs Aquarian Drunkard, uh, I want to say Justin, that's not right. But anyway, it's just like, you know, getting to see the guy behind the, you know, the website, so to say, that was turning me on to so much music, supporting so much music I loved. It's just like, ah, with, with really no like, kind of like, I mean, it grew into a business over time, but it was, it it felt really pure and very kind of word of mouth, which I I was just fascinated by. You know,
1: I I have to bring this up because you have a Josh Rouse poster behind you. Um, but the first time I ever heard <laughs> Josh Rouse, I think I told you this story was sure it was 1999 oh, I know I know it. at, at the new music seminar. Okay. And, uh, it was the very first year yeah. that that was webcast and I was listening to the webcast and they were live webcasting oh, from wow. um, New York city. And Josh was playing at Arlene grocery and I heard him and I was like, wow. wow. And I literally left work and went to Arlene Grocery and caught the end of his set. That's that how, that was just so crazy that you that. could do that. I couldn't believe wow. it at the time.
0: <laughs> now that it seems passe, but it, it wasn't man. done. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That reminds me the first time I was at South by Southwest and using GPS, using Google mm-hmm. Maps or whatever the map yeah. app was at the time going, you know, trying to catch multiple sets and, it, you know, looking it up going, OK, that's like a 15 minute walk. I can do it. And, you know, and it being like 15 minutes and giving me directions on how to get there it just kind of blew my mind. I was like, you know, how do we live without that? You know, the but world you know, that changes. The well, times, how do we live without you know? scooters now? Yeah. I
1: don't think I could get around South by Southwest now without scooters, but I did before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I still have not braved. I was just talking to somebody the other day saying, "Yeah, I, I hop on those, but only down in Austin during South by Southwest." And I'm like, ah, "I still can't do it." <laughs> um, so, bravo to you. But it's true. You got to be um, careful. Put in a lot, sure. of, a lot of lot of steps. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Ah. Oh. Man, well, yeah, I mean it was just such a fun time thinking about like music discovery during that time, both for fans and for for artists and labels to have that opportunity. I mean, what you brought into that by taking this on and championing it obviously opened up a lot of early opportunities. I mean, you mentioned RK Fire, I mean, obviously I would imagine a lot of the groundwork that was laid and what you guys were able to do you know, with Merge probably helped set the stage really for what was eventually to come. Same thing with Sufjan, I would imagine too. I mean, it's just like some of that stuff you just have to hear and you want to read and you want to get to know about it. And that was the way you did it back in the day. You
1: know, that was the way you did it. And, and we built a strong enough network that we could, we could get music in front of people. I mean, we really, I had a really good mentor. I had the beggars, you know, group, sort of is my the vision mm-hmm. of what a music brand is. So I built my company like that. I thought if I associate with other similar music brands, the Beggar's Group, I'm going to have a really interesting, you know, strong brand in music. And, and you know, that was the way it worked mm-hmm. out. And that, then when, we, when projects came my way, like like the first Sharon Van Etten record or the first A.A. Bondi record, mm-hmm. you know, all of these records, nobody had heard of. And, and, um, uh, or just a very small number of people and, uh, or the first civil wars record, I Mm -hmm. mean, for an even bigger one, um, all of that stuff came through our company first and it was really fun Wow, to get, you know, sometimes I'd have a CD that had been sitting on my desk. This was this way with Sharon Van Etten. I had a CD sitting on my desk from Greg Weeks at languages stone who had put it, put out the first record and it was sitting there for mm. i don't know like 2 months and i finally picked it up and i put it on and i heard that the first song on the record and i just like <laughs> dropped whatever i was doing got on the phone got Greg on the phone like tell me you have don't have somebody working on this yet Nope. nobody's working on it nobody's interested <laughs> like i'm interested Aww. so yeah, anyway that's awesome. it was it was a lot of fun but the, you know, the other thing is, at the same time, digital infrastructure was starting to get put together. So you had Napster operating in the background of this particular time mm. period, the mid-aughts. And you also had the advent of the iTunes store. So I went to the first event yeah. where Steve Jobs came out on stage and, and introduced the iTunes store to... Independent record label owners, wow. Apple flew in a lot of independents from around the world, um, and and then handed us the first deal and said, "Here's the deal." And so you know, we talked about that, and we that was the point at which you could negotiate and you know really negotiate, and and so we negotiated that deal, and um, that sort of kept my interest peaked. Because, you know, after that, it was, hmm. um, let's see, what would have come next, I guess, in, in terms of services. Spotify wasn't until 2011. Um, well, I guess in any case, there were. It domestically. But, yeah, domestically, there were. But when did, yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I was trying to think of, like, was not I'm trying to remember. Wasn't Spotify in Europe, though, like in 08, 09, maybe? Yeah, they were 08. Like ahead of launching here in the States? So, okay. So this this is probably a good segue into
1: the, into the more recent time period for me, at least as far as my company is concerned. Mm-hmm. So a- around the time that Spotify was getting started in Scandinavia, maybe 2008 or so, we were starting to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or I was starting to realize that uh, more and more income was being generated by digital music. And that meant that labels were starting to take away this exclusive relationship that we had for digital marketing and digital licensing. They were hiring their own new media people, right. digital people. And, and, you know, that freaked me out at first, um, but, um, <laughs> you know, we pretty quickly moved into the social media space. And we were able to work in that space super early in that space for about three years. Um, but then in 2010, I heard about Spotify. I think I heard about it from my friend, Steve Savoka, I was now at Apple Music. And hmm. <clears throat> um, I reached out uh, on behalf of Merge Records, who I was representing at the time, And got in touch with Ken Parks, who was running the very small U.S. office. It was, was, there were three people. um, And they were working out of the Island Record office. And um, it had not launched in the States. But what had happened, um, 2008 or maybe 2007, Spotify kicked off. And I believe in 2008 or early 2009, they signed a deal with Merlin which is a collective that represents independent record labels around mm-hmm. the world, negotiating collective, And so there was this deal with Merlin that was done, but not many of the U S independents had signed it. So Spotify, hmm. um, I went in, you know, to, to this meeting with Ken wanting to talk about merge, but also wanting to talk about, can I help you bring the independence into this, you know, new digital service that you're, that you're launching. So they hired me as a consultant. And that was when I started to switch a little bit, um, in terms of our focus, Mm. um, of kind of starting to move out of the marketing side of things and moving into working on behalf of music tech companies that were looking to license music and needed to acquire licenses from the independents. Um, and Spotify was our first client for that. Right. So we, um, wow. you know, there were, I guess I was number four in the U S office, as, at but as a consultant, but, um, lots mm-hmm. of days I'd come in, there'd be nobody there. And, um, and I, I, was working on the independence and so was able to get the early sub pop deals together and the early, I mean, lots of labels, Jade tree, a whole bunch of them, um, discord, um, so, um, <clears throat> and, and and I mean, it was a very you know, this is the, the point at which the music industry had really been quite decimated by yeah. by the you know, the move, um, for, first by the by the recession here, um, and then also just by Napster, um, and and it's And its uh, follow-ons, and um, Mm -hmm. you know, streaming hadn't taken hold yet. So, I think many of the people who were in a position to, to to try to find a solution on behalf of catalogs thought, well, streaming feels like a good solution. You know, that feels like an opportunity and a way to start generating revenue back. And of course, that slowly grew, and then it grew more quickly to where we are today, which is a much different place, um,
0: with it, you know, with its problems yeah. and opportunities. Yeah. Does it, did it ever feel, I mean, there's such a drastic, uh, shift in format really, and how you experience music, um, uh, during this time frame. you know, like I, I feel like fortunate being 50 this year, like having remembered an eight track, you know, bought my first vinyl in 83, Synchronicity, still own it. <laughs> Some was listening to it the other day. Uh, and then moving to cassettes for portability and CDs and then digital downloads. I remember being at Amoeba Music in LA, wanting to buy a second Damien Rice record and knowing enough at that point in the industry that if I went back to my hotel room and downloaded it on iTunes, he was going to see more money for that than if I bought it, you know. At, at Amoeba. So, um, you know, thinking about all of those components, uh, I was never a huge, huge fan of like digital ma- maintaining MP3s or digital files in general. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember playing around with Spotify, and this is why I was thinking early or uh, late aughts, because I remember being in Europe and playing around with it around. 2008 or so 2009 when I was still at network music because I I, network management I brought it back and shared it with a bunch of different people and everybody you know a lot of people hadn't experienced it yet and everybody was like oh my god this is like crack like you could just listen to anything think of anything type it in and find it for the most part and what that experience was like um, I mean does it feel like with all these ebbs and flows and being obviously such an early adopter and taking such a strong interest in you know, what, what digital music could really mean. Does this feel like, like the, the last like format? (laughs) Yes. In a way, I mean, obviously things come back in in the Vogue vinyl and cassettes and whatnot, but it just feels so interesting to me that, um, I just, I don't know. I can't imagine how else we would listen to music nowadays (laughs) from the portability. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure back in the day, uh, well, I know back
1: in the day, um, the idea that you would be able to stream a global catalog of music was, Mm -hmm. I mean, no, like how could you do that? But but we're doing it now. So no, I, I, I'm quite sure this is not the, the last format. Um, (laughs) I will say that, you know, after having that experience working with Spotify, I got to, I got to a point in my career where I thought, okay, now I need to start fixing some stuff because, hmm. you know, it's not, this isn't just about, I mean, Spotify was that a little bit, that the, the music industry itself required um, a new way to monetize uh, IP, monetize mm-hmm. masters um, and and songs. But um, I was thinking uh, after after the Spotify experience, I was thinking a lot more like that, about that. And, you know, I kind of got into, Um, first thing I started thinking about was, is the, is the pro rata distribution paradigm the right one? And, um, in maybe Hmm. 2013 or 2014, I presented an very early version of user centric at Meetum. Um, like what if you sliced up revenues this way? And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to claim that I was the first person that had that idea, but I did take a pretty public stand for many years hmm. to try to expand the conversation around, you know, just because we picked, just because, you know, we being the labels picked this uh, mm-hmm. iteration of, of music compensation doesn't mean it's the one that we should be using going forward, especially when this, Consumption means of music, you know, effectively a service. Music as a service, um, is is becoming right. so much of a percentage of revenue. So, so that was something I worked on, and I joined the Future Music Coalition, first as a board member and then as mm-hmm. as the, um, as the executive director, because artists, I start it started becoming. I started seeing how complicated it was being for artists to make a living the artists that i knew and had worked with in you know the dozen years mm-hmm. before many of them were really having a problem and and um, i felt like the future music coalition was a really good place to start to address issues like uh, artist health care and um, so i did yeah. that for four or five years um and and then you know more recently with JAXTA. So that, that was about building an official music metadata um, system. And you needed that because uh, yeah, uh, uh, digital music was so, it felt so commoditized to me. It was just name of the artist, name of the band, mm. not even the name of the label, certainly not the names of yeah. the individual people who were in the band. And when I grew up as a manager and it was all about um oh you know i'm in this band but i played with this band and that would help me book a show under my band's name and um you know that hasn't changed it's still the same in music you still want to highlight those connections so jaxta was about what if we could what if we could really improve metadata to the point where inside a player you can drill down on these relationships and music and see who's, who's in a band and what other bands they were in. And, you know, that's been that sort of the, 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 the part of my career that I've loved the best over the last, you know, yeah. 10 years is being able to jump into these rabbit holes and try to fix something or try to improve something. I've uh, really, really enjoyed doing that.
0: Yeah, that that's amazing. I mean, hearing that and thinking through our conversation, it's almost like it's full circle, right? Started off, you know, as a manager advocating for artists that you worked with, and, you know, jumped into the label pool, and actually was a huge advocate for them, obviously, in these spaces. um, So what, what was, uh, I'm curious, what was the not to overuse the word epiphany but and maybe it wasn't so much an epiphany but what made you kind of like get passionate about the way payouts were working in the streaming era as far as like because i mean you were you you essentially you were negotiating these these licensing agreements on behalf of the labels but were you thinking about it from like maybe a user perspective or a fan perspective knowing that you're listening to say you know whatever album after album of you know, somebody like a Richard Buckner, but yet that wasn't really being paid out in the same manner as, um, you know, from a usage point of view, uh, in a way. Because, I mean, it feels like, yeah, it feels like between that and the, like the impact it's had on those type of artists, independent artists, uh, financially is is interesting when you start to unpack that a little bit. Um, sure. You know, it's like that kind of somehow got lost in the shuffle, you know, to some degree, like, oh, this is this is a huge, amazing opportunity for, for, for the business, uh, for labels to monetize and continue to uh, distribute, for lack of a better word, these amazing catalogs of music. But the people that played on them, you know, are anonymous now, by and large, because they're not really, you know, you can't, you know, you aren't able to see who did what and where and what they contributed to. And, you know, obviously those payouts don't trickle down in the same way. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. it is. It's almost a problem that it kind of arose that I don't think a lot of people had a lot of foresight into. Well, so, you know, what I would say is
1: a surprising number of the deals that, you know, initially emerged in music were. I felt like the business models were for lack of a better idea. 50-50 splits kind of things. Like okay, Gotcha. Let's just split yeah, yeah. it 50-50. Um that that wasn't everything, but that but a lot of the early deals looked like that. So, you know, by the middle of the decade, mm. um, remember where I came from. I came from the primarily from the independent label space. I mean, we these days we do a lot of work with the majors right. too on the licensing front in particular, but um you know in the in the teens 2010 to 2020 um artists were decimated just like almost everybody else was in music um and not just in music mm. lots of other industries too yeah so um when the music industry started to bounce back But bounced back very heavily on the side of subscription. It just became, I mean, I would talk to friends of mine who were musicians, mid level professional musicians, and, you know, who were having to take second jobs or who were having to, you know, skip their health insurance. And it just all sort of, you're right, it was a full circle. I came around to this perspective of, well, okay, it looks like it looks like things are going to work out okay for most record labels out of this because of catalog. That wasn't immediately mm-hmm. obvious, but yeah, you know, um, artists in particular, older mid-level artists just don't have the same sales um, opportunities or a better way to put it is we hadn't thought of all the different opportunities yet. I mean, vinyl was still sinking probably at that point, maybe it was just starting yeah. to turn. Um, uh, you know, CD sales were, um, I guess, uh, they were certainly on their way down at that point. Um, so I think, um, that the impetus behind it was just seeing that my friends were struggling and there were some moves that I thought the digital services could have made, um, Hmm. that would have certainly helped the conversation. Like I still feel quite strongly that all the digital services really overlook the opportunity to help assemble uh, a, a true artist licensing collective. There, there just isn't one. And one that represents independent hmm. artists and that would have shared equity from what they were building with artists as well as with labels through Merlin or um, or you know individually at right. in each of the majors, I just feel like I still feel like that's a crazy missing. And I said this the whole time I was at Future Music. I feel like that's a crazy missing piece yeah. of music infrastructure that that hasn't happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, remember the independents, the independent record labels. It took uh, it took a leader in that field, a a label leader, someone like Martin Mills, to start to assemble, mm-hmm. you know, these individual record labels that were really pretty much fighting against each other was like a herd of cats. Musicians in many ways are the same, <laughs> yeah. a herd of cats. And they're all sort yeah. of they're not rowing in the same direction. If they all rode in the same direction, you'd have uh, you know, you'd have the opportunity to collectivize and and um Mm -hmm. share in the collective growth of this and you know there are people there are a lot of people who talk about this on a whole bunch of different levels people like jeff price who runs audium and i was an early consultant to TuneCore, um and um when they were getting started uh when jeff was running it and He talks about this a lot about the, the equity value of businesses and, you know, a lot, a lot of unions do too, but there just hasn't emerged a, an entity that has been able to step up on behalf of assemble and then step up on behalf of enough, um, independent, uh, artists of, of any size, Mm -hmm. whether X majors or whatever they are, um, to, Claim right. this, so, so that made me think I got to do something. That's a big chunk of missing income for artists. I got to do something to try to explore: is there a different way to slice up this revenue that can help, that can make it better? And 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 that's what I did. And you know that this is probably a good. We're getting close to end here, but but um, getting along to sort of what what we're doing now as a company one of the things I'm working on is I'm super focused. I'm doing a startup actually focused on artist income optimization. And, you mm. know, it's my goal is to try to improve and enhance the ability of the average artist, average professional artist to um, maximize the revenue streams. Um, you know, there's the expectation if you're an artist that you're able to do. Uh, you're able to that you need to be an expert in a lot of different things, content creation, right? Um, a variety of digital music service platforms, a wide variety of social platforms. I mean, I see this all the time with artists who say, "Okay, I just finished my record. Now I got to go," you know run some Facebook ads. I got to learn how to do that and do that well. And then I got to, you know, right. try to announce this thing on Instagram and, you know, and but then you realize they don't have a website or they, they don't have a mailing list and there's just, there's just all these missing pieces that I think can be improved. Right. Um, so I'm working on that and, um, and then trying to find forward thinking um, products that can help the music industry, and, and that is more focused on labels themselves because labels, big and small, um, you know, if they mm-hmm. can better optimize their revenue flows, they can they will earn more money, which means that the artists that are signed to them will earn more money, and um, and you know, the same with distributors, of course, because now they're a different path. If you're an independent artist, you have a distribution pathway. Into um, the world right. that you never used to have. You can go through whoever DistroKid kid or TuneCore or CD Baby, whoever it is. Um, so those those entities too mm-hmm. need to optimize the revenue that they're that they're generating. And um, so it's it's just a it's a super exciting time right now. Um, I'm really focused on AI, um, not AI music creation. Yeah, what that can But bring. AI right AI enhancement of jobs you don't want to do (laughs) um right right
0: yeah and there's not enough conversation around that really especially within the entertainment space it's like it's more of the creation component which I find kind of unfortunate like I'm certainly not leery I'm more excited for the opportunity uh overall but I did hear like an example being used somewhere in some article I was reading where like AI could help decipher and, you know, basically translate ancient languages in a way that we haven't been able to, you know, in the past. And it's like, things like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes absolute sense. Like it would take so much resources and so many like desperate you know, aspects to pull something together to learn and understand this, you know, from an individualistic or, or you know, uh, coll- even a collective manner, you know, more organically, so to say. But that's something that AI could probably knock out rather quickly and and really prove uh, useful and insightful. Um, yeah, I love that's something you're focusing on. And I'm really curious, and I hope the narrative gets to, like, what can we do from an industry level um with ai that gives us an opportunity to really expand opportunities and not you know just denounce them from a creative perspective i you know i mean creatively i think you're going to see through all that sincerity is what really i think what people connect with Mm -hmm. and authenticity and it's like you're not going to find that anyway from a creative perspective i mean i get i get there's a lot of nuance in that so i don't want to totally denounce it as is, is something as simple as that. But, um, you know, there's a blessing and a curse within all that, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I'm anxious to see hopefully, uh, a, a stronger narrative towards the opportunity there. I think there will be, I mean,
1: AI, AI is a really, really big ten. Um, you know, there, yeah. I think there's a tendency inside music to, you know, and and I understand it because you know new technology is confusing and it's scary. But I mean AI has been around for a long mm-hmm. time, and um, yeah, you know, true. there's a tendency in music to sort of I've, we've seen this happen several times over the last couple of years. Where you know, with NFTs, for instance, um, something you know, yeah, <laughs> that somebody will make seventy million dollars on an NFT, or Grimes will put out uh, make four or five million dollars on an NFT, and then you know. The next person that puts one out will make three cents and then the narrative will sort of start right. well you know this is over it's done like you know same thing with with ai you know the whole idea that everything ai ai does is attached to copyright is attached to you know is taking a job away from somebody else i mean it's so right. much, such a bigger tent than that that's that's a that's a part of the conversation but it is not the whole conversation. And, um, yeah, you know, I I just think there are, there's so many tools being developed that will help artists work smarter. And at the end of the day, and we haven't even, we've hardly Mm -hmm. talked about this yet, but you know, I still care so deeply about going to see music. I see music all the time and um, yeah, you know, I'm too. often the oldest person in the room. Uh, I wear a hearing aid now <laughs> because I've been to thousands of shows, you know, and oh. for many of them didn't wear a hearing aid. Yeah, It's just, you know, it is what it is. It's, um, I love music. Yeah, just just last weekend, I flew to down shows. to San Francisco yeah. to see the band Swell play, uh, you know, from 30, 30, 20 years ago, um, one of the bands we worked with the Beggars when yeah, I was there. wow. And I love I love That's seeing awesome. music. I love working with musicians, and I love being in the privileged position, which I've earned, I think, to be able to assist mm-hmm. these very musicians make a living or operate better. Um, and you know, you, I can expand that to to labels too. But at the heart of it all for me is really musicians, and it, go, it goes right back to first time I ever picked up a guitar, and I was like, what is this oh my god i'm gonna play this for the next seven hours you know and uh (laughs) and all my friends are going to be be musicians now going forward because i just figured out what i want to do it's um you know there's a there's the last thing i'll tell you um one of the one of the statements i always loved where is it let me just find it real quick here yeah um so sure Um, I had a friend who told me the following, she said, first person you have to convince that you can live the life you want is yourself. And I always thought that was so prescient and so, um, important. If you're one of those people who's, if you're starting a band or if you're trying to get into music, you don't know how to do it. You don't have any connections. You got to convince yourself that you can do it. If you convince yourself, you you know, you can Mm -hmm. be that person. Frank McCourt said once, uh, He's an an author, he he wrote a book about New York. And in that book, he said about Brooklyn, he said, um, you know, the question was, how do you know when you're a New Yorker? And the answer was, Hmm. you're a New Yorker when you think you are, when you think you are. And wow. It's the same in music. You're you. If you believe you can yeah. do it, you can do it. If you stick with it, you can find tremendous opportunity and and um, and incredible.
0: I mean, it's 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 a blessing of a career as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Yeah, and, and the people that both work both behind the scenes, such as yourself, and the musicians out there creating art. This is true in other industries too, entertainment industries. But it's not like you stop doing it. It's like it's you know you get that bite uh, and taste of it, and it's just what you do. You know, Uh, a lot, lot of everything else will ebb and flow. But I always encourage people to like. There is even even friends who I know really just love sitting down and playing music just as a release. You know, meditative release from the day. It's like, man, there's a, that's something, even on that level is very powerful, you know, uh, and is a so privilege. Uh, so I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's so true. Uh, well, I know, yeah, I, don't know if we can I know, I know your
1: background, Chris, <laughs> and I know that you are every bit as, as passionate and committed to the, to the world of artists. Uh, so it's a well, total thanks. pleasure for me to get to talk to you about uh, a little bit about me. I'd love to do one of these and talk about what you've done in music. Cause you've done a lot of music too,
0: but, uh, uh, uh your, your tale is more interesting. I'll say. it. But no, uh, <laughs> thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Uh, <laughs> we're both too modest, but no, I mean, this was an absolute pleasure and joy and, uh, just so good to reconnect and see you again and have this chat. And I can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for asking me. I really appreciate it.
0: I want to thank Dick for taking the time to chat today. And thanks to you as well for listening in. You can find us at all the usual places at Tough Love Pod, And you can find me at chris at toughlovepod.com. For now, be well, trip up, get back up, and let's all learn as we go. Until next time.